Welcome back to The Last Week in Medicine. I'm Stephen Jenkins, and today I'm joined by a special guest, the man, the myth, the legend, Dr. John Ryan. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank, thank you for having me on. <laughs> so for our local Utah listeners, Dr. Ryan is a man who needs no introduction. Uh, but for other listeners throughout the world, uh, John is an associate professor in cardiology here at the University of Utah, and he's a world-renowned specialist in heart failure and pulmonary hypertension. Uh, he graduated top of his class from University College Cork in Ireland from medical school and then did his intern year at Cork University Hospital. Uh, next, he went to Boston Medical Center to complete his residency in internal medicine where he was chief medical resident and then went to University of Chicago for cardiology fellowship. Uh, here at the University of Utah, Dr. Ryan is the director of the Pulmonary Hypertension Center and he's published countless papers in top journals, won numerous teaching awards and serves on multiple important committees in the medical school. He's also married with three children. What did I miss, John? Uh, I, uh, I think I think I cover most of it. <laughs> um, so thanks a million for coming on the podcast. I know you're super busy, um, but when I was perusing the literature this last week, there were all these papers about heart failure and, and this one about pulmonary hypertension, and I knew it was time to invite you on to, to share some wisdom with us and our listeners. So thank you. Great, of course, anytime. So how have things been going for you guys in the cardiology world during this pandemic? Sure. Um, it's been, I mean, it's, there's a lot of questions, right? I mean, early on, um, there quickly be heat. People quickly start to identify myocarditis, um, STEMIs, and, um, and then now we're getting more familiar with kind of long-term consequences of COVID. Mm -hmm. And so there's just a lot of questions. And now we're also getting questions about the vaccine. And say, for example, everyone's familiar with the comorbidities and the higher risk of mortality with comorbidities and even on our work in pulmonary hypertension uh, mm -hmm. our own group showed that people with pulmonary hypertension who do get COVID-19 have a mortality of one in six wow so which is incredibly high uh, but then it ends up being you know when you come on to from a public health standpoint or designing you know who's getting vaccinated uh -huh. uh, incorporating those risk factors and comorbidities so that it's equitable and sure and then measuring that against age-based issues is, is very, very hard. So mm -hmm. a lot of our busyness has come from, unlike our colleagues in the you know, pulmonary critical care, Dr. Hatton and, and Dr. Beck, who's on the program with me, yeah. who've been just you know, truly frontline in the units nonstop. Um, a lot of our work is coming from questions and complications of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and we're learning a lot of it as we go, right? Yeah. So, so it's definitely been, um, but I, I think we've, um, it's definitely been a stressful time, just like anyone else. Yeah, for sure. Did you end up getting the vaccine already? I did. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. Have you had the second dose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no problem. Uh, it was oh, <laughs> I got my second dose yesterday oh. and, uh, and like definitely was a lot achier and had some chills during the night. Uh, woke up this morning and needed some ibuprofen, but now I feel oh, fine. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, but what a what a year for science, you know. In terms of, I mean, I think sometimes we can be dismissive of how many papers came out over the last year and how much research has been going on around. But at the same time, it's actually quite impressive. And we got, a, as you know, we got a vaccine within a year. Which is yeah, yeah. If you would have told me that a year ago, when this you know pandemic really started going. 
I, I would have scoffed if you said we'd have a vaccine by yeah. December. So yeah, truly blessed in that way. Um, well, it's, it's kind of crazy. Uh, we, we do this podcast on Wednesdays and it's been uh, quite a month for Wednesdays. Uh, the first Wednesday of the month, there was an insurrection at the Capitol. Uh, last Wednesday, there was a, an impeachment trial or an impeachment vote. Sure. And uh, today we had an inauguration. So it's been a pretty eventful January. Did you get a chance to watch the inauguration today? I, I did not. No, I was, uh, I was rounding and seeing folks in clinic. Oh, very good doing the real work. So yeah. very good. Well, um, the first paper I wanted to talk about today was published January 13th online in the New England Journal, and it's the increased trial or the yeah. inhaled triprosinil in pulmonary hypertension due to interstitial lung disease by Dr. Aaron Waxman et al. So how do you guys currently manage patients with pulmonary hypertension due to interstitial lung disease? And, and why might these patients not receive the same medications that you'd give patients with like group one uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension? Sure. So we give them oxygen. That's the treatment up until now. We give, we have, um, we give them oxygen. And, um, and the reason for that is because up until now, any of the, what we call PH specific therapies, um, and you're familiar with them, sildenafil, bosentin, remodulin, or flolan. Whenever they've been used in this setting, um, they've actually worsened outcomes. And, uh, and we wrote a paper a few, two years ago in circulation on this issue about um, how there is kind of a mission creep towards using these pH-specific therapies in, for example, group two and group three pulmonary hypertension. Mm -hmm. um, for those not familiar with the groups, uh, group one is pulmonary arterial hypertension, um, which is typically either idiopathic or hereditary or connective tissue disease or congenital heart disease. Group two then is um, uh, pulmonary hypertension from left-sided heart disease, um, diastolic dysfunction most, most, most commonly. Then group three is pulmonary hypertension from hypoxic lung disease, COPD, pulmonary fibrosis, obstructive sleep apnea. And uh, when you look at the breakdown, 60% of pulmonary hypertension is due to left side of heart disease. 30% mm -hmm. uh, is due to hypoxic lung disease. And then 10% is due to pulmonary arterial hypertension. Mm -hmm. The only treatments we had available for this group three pulmonary hypertension was oxygen because all the others made things worse. And in actuality, um, uh, when you look at the causes of, or the prognosis of pulmonary hypertension, if you take those three, and if you say, which of these has the worst prognosis? So um, uh, higher power comes to you and says, Stephen, I'm going to give you pulmonary hypertension. And you say, yeah. all right, all right, higher power. That's, I don't really like it, but you're my higher power, so I'll take it. And, uh, but the higher power will say, but I'll give, you, I'll give you one thing, Stephen. You can pick which one you want. You can either have group one, group two, or group three. And I know you want to live as long as possible, and I know you want to stay out of hospital for as long as possible. So which one do you want? Group one, group two, or group three? Which would you say ask higher power for? Uh, I'd probably, well, I guess if I could pick what was causing my group three, like sleep apnea, but maybe I would go with group two. <laughs> sure. So actually in 2021, group one has the best prognosis okay. because we have 15 medicines available for group one. Wow. Um, as you know, we've no medicines for group two and group three. Yeah. Um, so, and then group two is in the middle, uh, in terms of prognosis. Because, and then group three has actually the worst prognosis. Mm. Worst prognosis, you actually hit the nail on the head. You're absolutely right. The, if you could treat the cause, but that's the most purposeful thing you said, because guess what? No one likes to use their CPAP. 
No. Um, whether, you know, the, and, and people, I remember my own mother-in-law, uh, some people uh, listening to this will know, had a lung transplant. She had a lung transplant wow. four years ago. And uh, she would uh, say to me, she'd say, John, I, um, I don't want to wear, I don't want to wear my oxygen. And she had bronchitis of the and I said, why do you want to wear oxygen? She said, I don't want to become dependent on my oxygen. <laughs> and it's like, Becky, I love you, but you're a land-living species and you're dependent on oxygen. <laughs> and, uh, but there is, as you know, there's this concept of I'm on it too much, then I'm going to need it more. And then it also makes you look sick, right? I mean, yeah. you can be young like you and maybe me, and you wear oxygen automatically people know that you look sick so, yeah. so that's why the treatment for group three has been so bad and then as i said the actual consequences when we gave medicines for this uh we made people worse but i think we we're actually looking at it the wrong way so now what does increase show increase now shows that if you give an inhaled prostacycline mm -hmm. that there is an improvement in six minute walk distance so what's an inhaled prostacycline first of all so prostacycline is what makes you blush when someone says something to you that embarrasses you, you release PGI2, you release prostacycline, and it dilates the vessels in your face, and you blush. That's what, that's what prostacycline is. Uh, it was developed by John Dane and, um, and then subsequently um, repurposed into, initially developed for coronary artery disease, interestingly, and then repurposed into pulmonary arterial hypertension. So it dilates blood vessels. That's how it works. So when we used these other medicines such as sildenafil um, or intravenous prostacyclines in group three pulmonary hypertension in the past, I think we were dilating too many blood vessels. Uh -huh. I think when we were previously um, uh, giving these medicines to people with pulmonary fibrosis, for example, we were dilating the blood flow, the pulmonary artery blood flow to damaged parts of the lungs yeah. and to good parts of the lungs. You have some VQ mismatch that you're making a little worse, probably. Potentially. Now, there wasn't necessarily observation of worsening hypoxia, but people certainly got worse. Huh. And, um, and uh, now, by inhaling it, by definition, it's really only going to get to the blood vessels where there is airflow going. Uh -huh. So it's only going to get to the blood vessels where there's oxygen going to, because it's got no other way of getting to those others, because it's only coming in in your breathing. So That's now... Kind of yeah, that's yeah. the theory behind inhaled triprostanil then. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So now you're so now you're selectively uh, dilating blood vessels that are going to air sacs that are open. And uh, and in that setting, uh, as you see in this trial, you end up with an improvement in six minute walk distance and um, some other secondary endpoints as well. I think a decrease in BNP and uh, some other uh, functional parameters that are improved. Yeah, well, let, let's let's go through yeah. some of the yeah, like kind of the design of this study. So it's a multi-center randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. So you know that's kind of the gold standard way to to do a, a trial. And they enrolled adults with a diagnosis of interstitial lung disease based on a CT of the chest performed within six months. They had to have group three pulmonary hypertension confirmed by right heart cath within a year of randomization. And they defined group three pulmonary hypertension as a pulmonary vascular resistance of more than three wood units, yeah. a wedge pressure of 15 or less, and a mean PA pressure of 25 millimeters of mercury or higher. So would you agree with their kind of definition for, for pulmonary hypertension in that scenario? 
Sure. Um, yeah, yeah, so it's the traditional definition of pulmonary hypertension. There has been a change in the PA pressures uh, that the cutoff now is 20 uh, as opposed to 25. And some people advocate that the PBR should now be lower. Um, but I will say that this is um, this is a, a group with, a, although those are the entry criteria and that I agree with the entry criteria, mm-hmm. um, the actual PVR in the study um, that's been made available is much higher. It's PVR of about six. And then the mean PA pressure ends up being about 36 or 37 millimeters of mercury. So they do have a more severe form of pulmonary hypertension than is typical for interstitial lung disease or COPD. That if you look at, if you look at you and me, our mean PA pressure is 15, right? Mm-hmm. We're about 15. Let's say the traditional cutoff is 25. You know, about 90% of people who have pulmonary hypertension from group three pulmonary hypertension are in that 25 to 30 range. Mm-hmm. It's very few that are over 30, and then even more few that are over 35. So this is a very select group. They are a very severe group. Yeah. yeah. So they randomized people to inhaled triprostanil or placebo. Uh, they, the inhaled triprostanil was given via an ultrasonic pulse delivery nebulizer at six micrograms per breath and the placebo was administered in the same way. And patients started with three breaths four times a day, and then it was increased slowly to a target dose of nine breaths four times a day, with a maximum of 12 breaths four times a day. They screened 462 patients, and it ended up enrolling 326. There was 163 participants in each group. Um, looking at kind of the baseline characteristics, there were more women in the triprostanil group. Uh, there were more patients in the placebo group that had idiopathic interstitial pneumonia as the cause of their ILD. And then patients in the placebo group were a little more likely to be on a medication for ILD, like profenadone or intenative. Um, But otherwise, I thought the baseline characteristics were pretty similar. I think it is. I think it is well biased and well balanced. Um, Interestingly, you look at the oxygen use, and uh, it's actually only 71% um, in the whole study. So mm-hmm. again, it speaks to the challenge of getting people on oxygen, which is the is 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 also a vasodilator, right? I mean, it's kind of your your preferable vasodilator. So so again, it just kind of highlights the challenge in taking care of that. So they they use a six minute walk test uh, that was performed as well as got lab data at weeks four, eight, twelve, and sixteen. And the primary endpoint was a difference between the two groups in the change in peak six-minute walk distance from baseline to week 16. So could you tell us a little bit about the six-minute walk test and and why that's frequently used as an endpoint in pulmonary hypertension studies? Sure. So uh, it's a six-minute walk, not a six-minute run. Um, uh, our own, as you know, we've got folks like Andy Walker who could cover a mile in six minutes, right? <laughs> so, um, uh, so it's six minute walk distance. So normal, regular, healthy people, uh, will walk about 600 meters. So a lap and a half of an athletic track in six minutes. Okay. And that's put things in context. You, uh, Stephen, with your height, obviously will walk further than somebody who's five foot. Um, uh, but in general, you get around 600 meters with a six minute walk. When you are sick and it's almost, regardless as to your cause of your illness, arthritis, heart failure, pulmonary hypertension, depression, multiple sclerosis, your six minute walk will fall to about 400 meters. So almost by virtue of having an illness, your six minute walk distance will fall. And that's kind of to help put things in context that the the average six minute walk distance going into this study was 260 meters. 
So, so that is much, much, so, so again, reflective of the fact that this is a sick population. And, um, and, there, and however, it's been established, you know, primary outcome in clinical trials in pulmonary arterial hypertension for a long, long time. We have moved away from it because how reflective six-minute walk distance is or how it relates to, um, to clinical outcomes has been a matter of debate. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, whether or not it correlates with mortality, people have, um, us included, have, have raised concerns about that, whether or not it correlates with functional class has been a concern, uh, hospitalization, et cetera, kind of your, your hard outcomes. But at the same time, it's the metric that's been used to get approval for pH therapies for the last 30 years. Yeah. Um, so I think it is a fine outcome uh, to choose the difference, uh, you probably, based on our work and others, people have said that you need about a 30-meter improvement in six-minute walk distance for someone to notice that. Mm-hmm. Um, even after we've, uh, Nate and I have written that, we've kind of seen over time that that may not actually, that, that's based on some tough data as well, how, how accurate that claim is. I've actually started to have some concerns about i mm. think 30 meters may not be enough anymore mm. uh, to have a translation to a functional outcome uh, but such as it is um that's kind of what uh, we've established as kind of a benchmark and in this study um they through various um in their analysis uh there is an improvement six minute walk distance of 31 meters yeah. the analysis are complex and i was just talking with uh, one of our uh, statisticians uh, earlier today that the analysis is complex in terms of how the six minute walk distance was measured there are imputations there which um i i don't know mm-hmm. yet what that means mm-hmm. And uh, and then there's do you use peak dose versus you know plateau and, and how do you decide on six minute walk distance? But at the same time, you've got you have an improvement in six minute walk distance, you have an improvement in uh, or you have less less clinical worsening, and you've got a BNP uh, improvement as well. So you've got your you have parameters that are all pointing in the same direction, which suggests that there uh, could be a benefit there. Yeah. So. Um... Yeah, you mentioned those other outcomes that they checked. The clinical worsening occurred in, in 22.7% in the triprosinol group compared to 33% in the placebo group. And it looked like that clinical worsening was driven in large part by, by an actual worsening in their six-minute walk tests and an increase in hospitalizations. Um, but there were also more exacerbations of underlying lung disease in the placebo group. Um, it, it's kind of crazy to see, though, that over just over 16 weeks, you know, one third of the placebo patients had clinical worsening. Yeah, it just just goes to show you how horrible the, the clinical disease is. Yeah. Um, so I guess my big question for you is like, is this something that was exciting in the pulmonary hypertension world? Are, are people excited to get their patients on inhaled triprostanil now, based on this study, or are people kind of still wondering what to make of it? Yeah. Um, well, I think anything that involves pulmonary vasculature gets us excited in the pulmonary hypertension world, right? Yeah. I mean, you and I are going to talk for 15 minutes about this uh, paper, but I have no doubt we will have, you know, we could have a seven-day conference about this paper alone and, uh, uh, and would um, uh, and enjoy it. Um, I do think there, you know, again, this is a disease that we have no treatment for except oxygen. Yeah. And, um, and now we have a trial that shows some benefit. 
I think throwing our hats in the air and celebrating and saying we now have a panacea, I think um, that would be naive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is a step forward. And I do think these people are going to start, you know, even when you look at our, our own program, um, there is a lot of pulmonary fibrosis out there. We are taking care of someone this morning. There's a yeah. lot of pulmonary fibrosis out there. And now this is a medicine that we can uh, be added to the treatment options. Within the study, not included in this paper, but presented elsewhere, is there is also, interestingly enough, Stephen, an improvement in FVC and FEV1. Hmm. There is actually a, a structural lung disease improvement as well uh, that's currently uh, being written up. So I do think that there... So, uh, I'm glad that uh, we have a treatment that's been shown to be successful. I have, I don't believe it's a panacea. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think there is um, still a lot of progress to be made in this field. Awesome. Well, the other paper that I wanted to talk about today is uh, the Galactic HF study. So this was cardiac myosin activation with omecamptive macarbal in systolic heart failure. I think originally published in the New England Journal Online back in November, um, but now published in last week's issue uh, in print. Um, this was by Dr. Tierlink et al. And then I noticed that one of the study authors is uh, is our very own Dr. Jim Fang, the chief yeah. of cardiology here at the U. So yeah. tip of the hat, Dr. Fang. Um, so this was an interesting study of, of a novel class of medications, these cardiac myosin activators. So this omecamptive is, is supposed to augment cardiac contractility by selectively binding to cardiac myosin, increasing the number of force generators or myosin heads that can bind to actin filament and initiate a power stroke at the start of systole. So physiologically, it's a, it's a pretty cool drug. Um, and I, I, I guess, you know, finding a drug for heart failure that increases contractility without increasing the patient's risk of dying from like an arrhythmia or ischemia is kind of like one of the holy grails of heart failure. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cause as you know, being having previously been on uh, the receiving end of our cardiology lectures and now on the delivery end in terms of uh, guiding people, you know, the beta blockers, there's the remodeling, right? And the ACE inhibitors, there's the remodeling. And everything is all about remodeling, even spironolactone. Yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right that anything we've done to increase inotropy, digoxin, milrinone, even dobutamine, or other, or, or other agents that we use have all been associated with increased mortality, specifically arrhythmias. So to have a medicine that, which is just crazy because the disease is a decrease in contractility. So yeah. you would think that the treatment is going to be improved contractility. Right. And, um, so in that regard, this is, this is kind of a, a major kind of landmark issue to, to recognize that as now we have a treatment that works through contractility. Yeah, so this study was also a multi-center randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. So much larger than the last one, though. Um, cardiologists like to enroll, you know, at least 8,000 patients per trial, it seems. (laughs) So they enrolled adults uh, 18 to 85 with an EF less than 35% and NYHA class 2, 3, or 4 symptoms. And they recruited patients who were currently hospitalized for heart failure or who had been hospitalized or seen in the ED in the last year for heart failure. Um, They had some NT pro-BMP or BMP cutoffs. 
And then they excluded patients who were hemodynamically unstable on mechanical support or IV medications, or if they were hypotensive or had a GFR less than 20. Um, so patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one ratio to oral omecamtiv macarbal or placebo for 24 weeks. The dosing was adjusted based on plasma levels, but patients and investigators were not aware of the, the levels or the dosing. And so the primary outcome that they chose was a composite of heart failure events or cardiovascular death, whichever occurred first in a time to event analysis. And a heart failure event was defined as urgent clinic visit, ED visit, or hospitalization for subjectively and objectively worsening heart failure leading to treatment intensification beyond a change in diuretic therapy. So what do you think about the primary outcome that they chose for this paper? Oh, I think that's an excellent primary outcome. Yeah, I think... Um uh, and it's also, it's been hard, right? Because we've had so much progress in heart failure um, over the years uh, that it actually, it gets hard. It gets harder and harder to have positive outcomes in heart failure studies uh, because we have so many medicines that are available now that have been shown to be beneficial. And, and what do people not like? People don't like death and people don't like being hospitalized. Yeah. And, um, and they, and you know, from as being a clinician, uh, neither the patient nor their, uh, clinical team like getting called about, you know, Stephen Jenkins got very short breath. He needs to be seen today. Right. That just, you know, um, disrupts the patient's, um, day, their family day and the care team's day. Mm -hmm. So I think those are very, um, uh, they're, especially in comparison to our increased data, I think they are much more. Uh, bona fide real world um, um, clinical outcomes. Yeah. The secondary outcomes they chose were cardiovascular death, um, a change in total symptom score based on the Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire, first heart failure hospitalization, and death from any cause. Um, is this uh, Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire used a lot in heart failure trials? It is, yeah. It's your standard um, kind of uh, patient-reported outcomes uh, corresponds with, um, or, or patient-centered, sorry, it's more patient-centered, uh, namely how you're feeling, and it corresponds, uh, it does have a good correspondence with clinical outcomes as well. So fairly standard, and it makes it easier to compare with other trials. So uh, 4,120 patients were assigned to omicamptive and 4,112 to placebo. Uh, looking at their baseline characteristics, they were very well balanced. 80% uh, males, which I guess is kind of typical of heart failure trials, 77% uh, white. It looked like 94% were on a beta blocker, 87% were on an ACE ARB or an ARB plus nephrolysin inhibitor, Secubitril. 77% uh, were on a mineral corticoid receptor antagonist, and 32% uh, had ICDs. Interestingly, only 2.5% were on uh, SGL2 inhibitors. What yeah. do you think about their background therapy? I think the background th therapy is very representative of the time it was done, and I think the SGLT2 inhibitors really only started to be recognized and appreciated um, after the trial, you know, and even even in the last year, if we're being honest, you know, but as as Emperor has come out, and um, and then the is the Soloist trials that's even just been published as well. So I think the SGLT2 inhibitors, um, which have been incorporated into the heart failure guidelines as were published two weeks ago, um, are still you know in evolution in terms of getting uh, getting on board. And I think actually that's reflected the fact that I think. 
it's a slow to get new medicines on board in heart failure. The RNA is being up at 19 or 20%. Um, it just takes time for these medicines to be, um, be used because people have gotten so used to ACE, beta locker spiral. Yeah. get them on those medicines and uh that changing that um uh clinical practice there's just some inertia in terms of getting people to change so uh the primary outcome of a heart failure event or death from cardiovascular causes occurred in 37 percent of omicamptive patients versus 39.1 percent in the placebo group so it was a 2.1 percent absolute difference which i'd say is pretty modest but it was statistically significant yeah, it's modest, but as I said, it's hard also when you have, I mean, if you go back to what they're on, they're on, you know, you got, uh, they're on ACEs and ARBs, they're on beta blockers, uh, they're for the most part, they're on mineralocorticoid receptors. A third of them already have defibrillators in, which is going to hopefully address uh, some of those mortality issues, right? The arrhythmic deaths. So when you have so much on background, Really, Stephen, and, and this is what you see with the very Siguat as well, the Victoria trial that was published last year, and very Siguat actually just got approved today for systolic heart failure. Um, it is hard to have these 20% reductions, you know, 30% relative risk reduction uh, yeah. that, we, that we come to expect. So I do think you can say with a 2% relative risk reduction, and, or sorry, 2% absolute risk reduction, 8% relative risk reduction, that there's a... There's a, there's a positive effect here. Yeah. Uh, the secondary outcomes that they looked at, death from cardiovascular cause, was the same in both groups. Uh, there yeah. was no difference in symptoms based on the questionnaire. There was a 10% reduction of the NT proBNP levels at week 24 in the omicamptive group. Um, and there was also a small increase in troponin levels. Um, so so I, I'm guessing, you know, with with positive results, this is a drug that will likely, you know, be approved by the FDA. Um, it will probably be expensive. Who do you think will be the kind of ideal patient to, to get this drug? I think one group is people who have persistently low ejection fractions. And when you look at the study, there was a signal to even more benefit in people whose EFs, I think, were less than 28% or something. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there was even a more positive effect there. And I think the others, and you've experienced this as well, right? You're on rounds and you want to start spiral, but the intern says, oh, the potassium is 4.9 or 5.2, so you can't start spiral. Yeah. And you want to start, uh, you want to start an ACE and an ARB, and then the pharmacist will say, oh, well, their blood pressure is, you know, 98 over 60 so you can't start the ACE or ARP. yeah and, then, um, and you want to start beta blocker but their you know their heart rate is you know in the 50s so or you want to go up on the beta blocker dose but their heart rate's in the 50s so this is a drug that doesn't affect heart rate doesn't affect blood pressure and um and doesn't affect potassium levels and uh so and that's a that's a lot of the sickest people you know that right that's a lot of yeah. the sick people who are in and out of the hospital all the time and uh, so that's who i think will benefit mostly from this drug and where it'll be mostly used i don't know and uh, admittedly again it was incorporated or sorry the guidelines were published two weeks ago and it was not incorporated um into the updated uh, into the updates for the chf uh, heart failure reduced ejection fraction guidelines um uh but this i do think is a medicine that people will will add on to their therapy but again after their beta blockers after their ace arbs or RNAs, after their spironolactone and now in particular after their sglt2 inhibitors mm -hmm. uh, i think that's kind of your backbone of hef ref management and then the other things the omicamptive 
very uh, um and others will be kind of on the fringes but still there's so much heart failure right there's you know yeah. Uh, so many million people in America of heart failure that this is a medicine that um, that I think is going to be uh, will have a significant um, will ha- will have some role. Yeah, for sure. I think you know I'll have patients in the hospital, like you said, that we want to start them on appropriate therapy, right? And and and, and so whether they're already on an ACE beta blocker, spironolactone, and I've tried to get patients on SGL two inhibitors, and and one of the biggest things we run into is cost for yeah. that. The pharmacists immediately are like, you know, well, we got to start a prior authorization for that. And suddenly it becomes this battle to get them started on, you know, either canagliflozin or dapagliflozin. And it's like mm-hmm. 500 bucks a month if you don't have insurance. So how do you guys approach that in the clinic? If you have patients who are already on, you know, optimal therapy and you'd like to get them on Entresto which is also very expensive, or an SGL2 inhibitor, if, if cost is a big issue. Yeah, so it is, so cost uh, of these medicines is certainly an issue. I am optimistic that with the new guidelines, that the fact that the ARNIs were now judged to be first-line agents for heart failure reduced ejection fraction, and that the SGLT2 inhibitors are explicitly um, uh, recommended as um, a part of guideline-directed medical therapy, GDMT. I am hopeful that this will, and now that there's more of them, right, there's the empagliflozin, daptagliflozin, sotagliflozin, and um, that there will come a time when the price does come down. But you're right. It is words, you know, one sentence from you and me can result in an hour's work or two hours work for those who need to get these drugs approved. And um, so you're absolutely right. It's very easy for you and me to say, let's get them on dapagliflozin. And then all of a sudden our PharmD or our intern or our APC who's already overworked, like, oh, well, there goes, you know. Um, there goes another two hours. So, so I think uh, we we have systems in place to do this, and um, there are uh, as our own APCs in our pulmonary hypertension program are exceptional at this. But again, it's um, it and our PharmDs uh, as well just are the kind of the the jewel and the crown of our program because these issues are just so hard to address. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for for all of that and for you know providing some background and context for everything and, and your expertise. It's always nice to learn from an expert. So, <laughs> um, well, I think um, uh, you are—you've just bring so much value to to our department, to our school of medicine, with the education that you do, and, uh, and the knowledge that you bring. So, we're very appreciative of that. So, and uh, now with this last week in medicine, just expanding your horizon, um, it's uh, expanding the scope. So, please feel free. To, I would love to do this again. I would love to come back. If you'll have me back, I'd love to come back. Oh, we'll definitely beg you to come back. So, (laughs) all right. right, Well, that's all we have for today. Um, We'll be back next week. Uh, See ya.